This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. Thank you for joining us today, listeners. My name is Eve Massingham, and I'm a Senior Research Fellow in the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland. Today, we're going to be talking about the impact of technology for humanitarian action on the battlefield, in particular, the key areas of current discourse and associated legal challenges. I'm delighted today to be joined by Chief Legal Officer for the International Committee of the Red Cross, Dr. Cordula Ledroge. The International Committee of the Red Cross is the world's largest humanitarian actor, but also the guardian of international humanitarian law, making Cordula an excellent person to delve into this topic with us. Welcome to the program, Cordula. Thank you. Now, the International Committee of the Red Cross has clearly been looking at various different types of new technology and warfare as they have arisen over many decades. What are today's key legal challenges and the significant implications of investment in military technology from the perspective of the ICRC? Okay, perhaps perhaps the the most important thing for an organisation that's you know meant to be the guardian of international humanitarian law, so the law that constrains um, and limits um, warfare for uh, the protection of civilians, notably, is that of course you always have to find a balance between military necessity and humanity as required by IHL. And therefore, military technologies, which are always pursued for military advantage, are constrained by by international humanitarian law. But perhaps also, what I'd like to say is that when we look, you were talking about the investment in, in, in military technologies. And when we look at the consequences of investment in military ne- technologies, it's not only about new technologies. So you have um, new development of old technologies that raise serious humanitarian concerns, such as nuclear weapons being modernized. And, and of course, this is a topic that we've been discussing recently around the, you know, the treaty on, on nuclear weapons. Um, or you have uses, new uses of all technologies, and, and the one that uh, will come to your mind immediately is, of course, the use of chemical weapons in recent years. That's particularly concerning. Or you simply have continuing bad use of uh, all technologies, such as explosive weapons with wide uh, impact areas in urban uh, in urban settings. And, of course, we've seen uh, that so starkly over the over the past years, particularly in the Middle East, but also in other places. But coming back to your question about new and emerging technologies of warfare, the ones that are often referred to when we talk about those are on the one hand cyber operation in um, in warfare, as well as um, the development of autonomous weapon systems, as well as uh, more recently also. Um, more and more um, the use of artificial intelligence or what's called machine learning um, in uh, in, uh, military technologies. And for us, what's important in that respect is that all technologies must be, as we said, compliant with IHL. They have to be um, reviewed for that before being deployed. 
And this has to be done based on a realistic assessment of their potential consequences and risks for civilians and compatibility on IHL rules. So we, we really have to look at the big picture of how new weapons are actually used or likely to be used in the real world scenarios that we have today, which means protracted conflicts, urban conflicts, conflicts which are messy, if you allow that word, which have a multitude of actors and, and, and conflicts in which civilians and militaries are very often intermingled. So we really have to challenge, you know, narrow scenario driven thinking and, and question claims where um, it is it is said that you know new technologies will um, will actually improve or be a benefit for compliance with IHL. That may marginally be the case. But when you look at the conflicts today, as I, as I said, you know, protracted, urban, um, implying a multitude of actors, regional. And when you look at the humanitarian problems that we see, at least at ICRC, none of those humanitarian problems will be addressed by new military technologies, you know, large scale displacement and flight, proliferation of non-state armed groups, um, the abuse of children, abuse of detainees, uh, lack of education, impoverishment. So, so none of those will be addressed by um, by investing in in military technologies, and and particularly perhaps today, as we have even greater disparity, we have a lot of conflicts. We have the climate crisis. On top of it, now we have a global pandemic. Investments in military technologies also have an opportunity cost, and and I think we have to question. Um, you know, that, that precious resources continue to be sunk into, into arms built up when, when they're desperately needed for healthcare or humanitarian assistance. Um, I hope you, you, don't, you don't think I'm, I'm digressing a bit, but I, I think as we start this podcast, I, I want to set this into, into, this, into this bigger picture. And perhaps the last thing to say in terms of the overall implications for conflicts that we do see are some some worrying trends perhaps um, perhaps on two issues. One is the expansion of conflict into new domains, which causes additional layers of, of damage and vulnerability for civilians. So one of those domains obviously is, is the cyber domain. So you have a new surface of attack and vulnerability, of course, for instance, for civilian infrastructure. And in the future, of course, we have to worry about conflict in outer space. And the second one is the speed of warfare, which continues to increase with these um, technologies that we have just been talking about, artificial intelligence, autonomous weapon systems, cyber systems. Um, those, those risk leaving less space for human control and judgment, particularly, of course, um, autonomous weapon systems and artificial intelligence. And, and if we believe, and we can perhaps come back to this later, that humans must remain in control, then we have to ask ourselves almost, you know, does, does IHL set a speed limit? Thank you so much. That raises so many um, interesting questions. And, and I agree, we'll, we'll definitely come back to the discussion a little bit more about some of those emerging uh, technologies and also the, the humanitarian issues that you raised. But I just was really interested and I, and I haven't, you know, heard it coming from other perspectives so much. Uh, the focus that you put initially on the 
the implications of significant investment in in current military technologies uh, and, and and making them new and, and emerging and have have new challenges themselves. And I'm wondering if I could um, ask you to, to sort of maybe articulate a little bit some of the examples um, you talked about, sort of improvements in in, in nuclear weapons um, and chemical weapons as as examples. Um, those developments, you know, obviously as, as as you flagged, some the military would say, well, this is making these uh, better, safer, more able to, to protect the civilian population. Uh, but it seems that, that your perspective is that they're not actually addressing a lot of the, the core humanitarian problems that the ICRC is seeing, seeing in the field. So I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that. Okay. Well, I mean, chemical weapons are prohibited anyway as a matter of, of, of customary law. So, you know, those those are prohibited and there can be no claim that they can, you know, in any way improve either um, military uh, strategies or, or humanitarian uh, uh, situations. Now, for nuclear weapons, what we see is a modernization of weapons arsenals. We have a bit more nuclear weapons. Many of those nuclear weapons have higher yields even than the nuclear weapons that were deployed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And many of those are on high alert, uh, which means they can be deployed within a matter of moments. And so that, of course, is, is you know, highly concerning in terms of, of humanitarian consequences. Um, and, and there again, I come back to what I said before, we have to look at a realistic scenario of what these, you know, what, uh, what the deployment of nuclear weapons will, uh, will mean. And the likelihood, of course, is wide scale uh, destruction. These weapons can, you know, un unlikely to be contained either in space or in time. Um, and we have seen this before, of course, you know, the, 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 the blasts in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were enormous, but also their effects over time. So today still the Japanese Red Cross um, treats patients in its hospitals for uh, long-term effects that they uh, suffered in Hiroshima, for cancers that they suffered in Hiroshima. So so these these are uh, developments that we have to worry about because of course states have agreed particularly in the non-proliferation treaty to um, work towards the elimination of nuclear weapons um, and instead of that we see a, you know a rearmament or a, as i said a modernization of nuclear weapons arsenals and this is this is very concerning now of course we've had a great um we've had a great success um this year in january about the coming into force of of the treaty on the on the banning of nuclear weapons and of course that's that's really a moment to celebrate uh, for the ICRC in particular, because we've asked, you know, we've called for the banning of nuclear weapons ever since we witnessed uh, the suffering in Hiroshima. Um, and so to see that it, it comes into force some, some 75 years later is, is, is really a, 
yes, a, a, a cause to celebrate. It's also a cause to to pay homage to the Hibakusha, the the victims of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. But it is only the beginning of, uh, you know, still a very very long journey to eliminate these nuclear weapons from um, from the world. I guess. Um, many of this in this field are hoping that when we're, we're not looking at a, a 70 plus year uh, timeline to see some international uh, agreement on some of the more emerging technologies that, that you talked about. Um, the, the obviously the, the group of government experts on lethal autonomous weapons has been discussing um, those issues for, for a lot shorter, shorter period of time. It, it's, it's this um, this decade just gone, that that's um, really engaged some focus. But there have been a number of years of conversations and, uh, as you, you mentioned, uh, human control uh, earlier, uh, there seems to be uh, a lack of agreement on, on some of the core concepts around what perhaps, to use the terminology that sometimes you use, meaningful human control uh, and, and judgment means. Uh, what do you think are some of the particularly interesting developments that are happening in, in that autonomous weapons space? Well, you know, perhaps the development is more military than legal, and that's perhaps what should give us pause uh, pause to reflect and, and perhaps also create a certain concern, because you are right, of course, that it's only a decade, but, uh, you know, developments can go fast, and we need to think about uh, having agreement. This is this is a bit of a matter of urgency. We need an agreement at the international level, be it uh, in, in a political or policy or, or legal form, about um, how autonomous weapons um, can be deployed or used in a manner that that retains human control. For us, it's very important that human control should be retained for ethical reasons, for legal reasons, for humanitarian um, or societal reasons. So, just perhaps for for our listeners to to um, to make clear what we're talking about, we're talking about weapons which have which are autonomous in their critical functions of selecting and targeting um, so the human doesn't intervene at the moment of selection and targeting of the objective and that creates as we said problems from an ethical point of view but also from a legal point of view now when you think about the legal point of view of course you have um, the principles of distinction, proportionality and precaution. So the obligation to distinguish between um, civilians and military and civilian objects and military objects um, and uh, the, the, um, the obligation not to cause excessive civilian harm and the obligation to take precautions in that respect. Now, if the human is not present at the moment of selecting um, the target, but in fact the weapon is triggered with only a very vague notion, which is an algorithm which has a pattern or a, a category of uh, targets, then it um, poses a clear question about distinction. Will the weapon distinguish between um, military and uh, civilians and between military objectives and civilian objectives. And again, we have to think about these weapons in the context of wars as they are fought today and will be fought in the future, which is mainly in urban environments 
which are messy, complicated, and in which it's very difficult to distinguish. Well, not always, but there are very many complicated situations in which it is difficult to distinguish between um, you know, soldiers and, and, and civilians or members of non-state armed groups and, and civilians. And so there's a serious problem of predictability with those weapons. And if you cannot predict who or what a weapon will actually target, then that weapon is indiscriminate and has a high risk or has a high risk of being indiscriminate, depending on the level of, dis of, um, of lack of predictability. So that's, that's a, a, a serious concern. And we have to find ways to make sure that these weapons will comply with IHL by restricting um, you know, the types of targets which they can, um, they can target by restricting the geographical, uh, um, you know, by having geographical limitations, for instance, etc. And this needs to be discussed by the group of governmental experts and um, good progress has been made. Um, particularly uh, last year, you know, there were some principles that states agreed to. Um, there seems to be largely agreement about um, human control or judgment. There are different uh, ways of, of wording it. So there, there seems to be some convergence of views, let's say. Um, but, um, but again, I think, uh, you know, we have to, we have to have a pace that is a pace of legal discussion that is also adapted to the pace of development of those weapons. And then perhaps lastly, to say something about the ethical concerns, you know, there is something ethically highly problematic about um, targeting people on the basis of algorithms. So people aren't targeted, so people are reduced in a way to, to numbers in an algorithm when they are being targeted. And that raises a number of ethical concerns that ethicists and, 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 um, and, and experts in ethics have, have discussed about the agency of, of people, about, uh, about human dignity and so on. And this must absolutely also be part of the discussion. It cannot be set aside in that discussion. Absolutely. And I guess that links very uh, closely to asking you about this, this idea of, of, of legal review of weapons. And we've had uh, another expert on the podcast sort of talk us through the process of, of legal review of weapons. But there has been clearly some discussion about how the new technologies such as autonomous weapon systems that you've just been talking to us about um, how they do pose challenges to, I guess, this traditional process. Uh, how, how do you make sure that the, the new technologies can comply with it? IHL. Um, what's the ICRC's position in relation to, to how a legal review of a, a new technology in relation to weaponry might play out? Yes, indeed. So the, the legal review has to be about, um, you know, the use and, the, and a realistic assessment or prediction about the use of the weapon. And again, if um, it is not clear how the weapon will actually select its targets, then of course, how can you then predict what it is going to do on the battlefield? And then how can you assess its compatibility with international humanitarian law? So there might be narrow scenarios where this is possible, for instance, and there are of course already autonomous weapon systems that are deployed and that do not pose 
at least in our view, a major um, major concerns in terms of either IHL or the protection of civilians. So, for instance, you know, missile defense systems that you have that are deployed in areas which are more or less devoid of civilians um, and that have, you know, a narrow range of targets, narrow geographical range, do not pose such a big um, such a big concern and are fairly predictable in what they will be doing. Um, but that's, of course, not the case. Um, that's not going to be the case for all of those weapons. And as you move further into, again, artificial intelligence or machine learning, in, you know, in my mind, it becomes altogether impossible, really, because the, the characteristic of artificial intelligence and, and machine learning is that the machine changes the way it works over time because it learns based on input from the outside, but not anymore based on input from, um, you know, um, the, the person who triggers, uh, who launches the machine. Um, and so in that case, you will not be able to know at all what the machine will do at a certain moment in time, because it will have changed the way it functions based on artificial intelligence or machine learning. And those weapons are very unlikely to be able to be compatible with uh, with international humanitarian law, and you won't be able to review their compatibility to start with. You mentioned earlier the the new domain, uh, so to speak, of of cyber, and the responses uh, that we've just had to the, the last couple of questions, I guess, make me think that there must be a great range of similarities uh, in terms of the legal developments when you're talking about cyber as compared to autonomous weapon systems. For example, as you were saying, so much of, of warfare is now happening in urban environments uh, and in, in, in the same way in a cyber environment, it's very hard to distinguish between military and civilian. Uh, but then there must be huge differences as well. The, the concept of doing a legal review in the cyber context uh, must be considerably different to an autonomous weapon system. What are the ICRC's views, I guess, uh, in relation to both those questions, the particularly interesting legal developments in the cyberspace? Uh, the, the process is quite different there with the Talon manual as opposed to the uh, group of government experts process. Um, and also the, the way that a legal review might play out for cyber, or is that even applicable? Mm-hmm. So, um, in terms in terms of the legal development, it's, it's perhaps not that different because, of course, you also have a group of governmental experts dealing with um, uh, questions of, of of cyber information warfare, or it, it it has a long it has a long and complicated name, but that's what it deals with. And in parallel, you have an open ended working group. Um, also dealing with those issues. So there are um, there are also these UN processes ongoing and they are um, just as difficult in a way, I think, as on, on autonomous weapon systems because there's there's disagreements on, on very fundamental issues. And on, on cyber warfare, and this is not the case for autonomous weapons, there is even a discussion um, about the applicability of um, international humanitarian law to cyber warfare because, you know, cyber operations are, of course, deployed in all sorts of settings below and above the threshold of armed conflict. Some states do not want to 
allow a militarization of um, cyberspace and therefore do not want to enter into a discussion about the applicability of international humanitarian law. Others want to insist on the applicability of international humanitarian law. This also, of course, has to do with the fact that some argue that international humanitarian law is sufficient to regulate cyber operations and others argue that new law is needed. So there is a, a lot of, of discussion and, and disagreement there as well in uh, amongst states. From an ICRC perspective, cyber operations have not been deployed very much in armed conflict situations, but some of them have. But uh, cyber operations are, of course, more and more um, being used uh, or have been uh, operating outside of armed conflict situations. And there we can, we have not seen absolutely devastating effects or death on a large scale or so on, but we have seen attacks against, you know, um, industrial systems, against healthcare systems, against even uh, nuclear um, uh, plants, nuclear energy plants. And so we do have a concern that there is a potential human cost to cyber operations that could be severe, um, which is why the ICRC is interested in the, in the question, of course, because our perspective is always about new technologies of warfare, what the potential human cost is and what IHL and how IHL limits um, their use. Um, now, from our perspective, there's no question that if cyber operations are deployed in armed conflict situations, international humanitarian law applies to them because, um, as we know uh, and have known for a long time, IHL applies to all new technologies of warfare. This dates from the time of the St. Petersburg declarations, which affirmed this. Um, it was also reaffirmed by the International Court of Justice. Um, it's also, it can be, it can be, be deduced from, of course, Article 36 of Additional Protocol 1, which requires this legal review of weapons, which just means that when new weapons are being developed or deployed, then they first have to be assessed as to their compatibility with IHL. Now, the fact that IHL applies to um, cyber operation is one thing, but in order to really be protective for civilians, um, what matters is how do you then interpret IHL in cyberspace? And this is, I think, where the crux of the matter is because, and it also is what to our mind should determine whether new law is needed or not. Because if we had an agreement that IHL applies to cyber operation, and if we had an agreement on um, interpretations that are actually meaningful in terms of the object and purpose of IHL to protect civilians from harm coming from military operations, then you perhaps wouldn't need new law. But that's far from clear. So that sounds perhaps a little bit abstract. So I'll give you an example. Um, or an example or two. So in uh, international humanitarian law, you have to respect these principles of distinction, proportionality and precautions, notably when you launch an attack. And so the question is, what is an attack? And is a cyber attack an attack? An attack is normally an act of violence, whether in offense or defense, according to international humanitarian law. So is a cyber attack an act of violence? Um, and some have said, well, 
if a cyber operation merely disrupts, let's say, some civilian infrastructure, so for instance, an electricity grid, if a cyber attack only disrupts such an electricity grid, then this can't be seen as an act of violence and therefore it's not an attack and so the rules don't uh, get triggered. Um, but if you have that um, interpretation of international humanitarian law, then of course, um, you know, uh, you could attack any civilian infrastructure through cyber without it being an, an attack and therefore without triggering uh, the prohibitions and the, and the restrictions that you have in IHL. Now, from our point of view, if, um, you know, if you cause a similar um, effect on civilian infrastructure as you would through a, a, a kinetic attack, then clearly this must be seen as an attack, even if it's, uh, if it's done by cyber means. Um, or another example that I could give you is about data. So, of course, there's a prohibition to attack civilian objects in international humanitarian law. Um, but with cyber, you will often attack data. And so the question is, what are data? And, you know, even in the old ICRC commentary to additional protocol, one, of course, we say, well, civilian objects are something tangible. And data isn't necessarily something tangible, but to our mind, if you are talking about civilian data, such as, for instance, medical data, uh, bank data, so personal data of civilians, to our mind, this should be interpreted um, as falling under the concept of a civilian object, because otherwise you would miss the object and purpose of international humanitarian law in cyberspace. But so these are the sort of technical legal discussions um, and legal developments that you were asking me about in, in cyberspace. And they are far from over. I mean, this, this is all still being discussed. Um, much is still open about it. Um, and, and again, our concern here is really to, to have the best outcome in order to, to protect civilians. Now, in terms of legal review, what's your second question? I think it's a bit different from autonomous weapon systems because as we said, autonomous weapon systems are really defined by a measure of unpredictability because of this autonomous uh, selecting and targeting by the algorithm and not the human who uh, deploys the weapon. Um, whereas, um, sci so, so, and that's the, sort of the definition. So you could, have, of course, have autonomous cyber weapon systems. But the very definition of that cyber weapon system would then be that you don't know exactly what or who the algorithm is going to select. But that's not the case for all cyber weapons or cyber operations. So you could have very targeted cyber operations. Just for instance, if you, um, you know, there's this very well-known attack um, called the Stuxnet um, um, uh, operation, which targeted a very specific part of um, of a nuclear site in Iran, um, and it was a very, very targeted, um, you know, cyber operation or cyber attack, if you will. Um, and if you if you if you program an attack in a way that it is very, very specific, then I think you can do the legal review, of course, because you have a high predictability of what this attack will do. 
Now, the question is then whether you can de deploy it many times, because, of course, then it gets, you know, it gets analyzed and whether that's a weapon you can then replicate is a, is a different question. But I think the legal review question is, 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 is um, more difficult for, for autonomous weapon systems by the very fact that we define them as systems that have this measure of unpredictability. It seems that we could certainly discuss uh, a number of these military technologies um, in, uh, in much more detail, but we also wanted to use the time with you today to talk a little bit about the uh, technologies that humanitarian actors might be, be taking advantage of. Uh, clearly, um, it's not just in the warfighting domain that, that new technologies are, are emerging and uh, businesses and, and, and governments all around the world are using new technologies in, in different ways. But I would imagine that humanitarian actors are, are taking advantage of some of these technologies as well. Uh, and so just interested to know what it is that the International Committee of the Red Cross might be focusing on or, or what new developments uh, might be of benefit to humanitarian action. Yes, <laughs> it's almost a, a lighter subject, so it's quite nice to pass to this subject maybe because I might have sounded very um, technology sceptical <laughs> in, the, in the past half hour. And of course, new technologies have, you know, can have huge, uh, huge benefits and including in, in humanitarian action. And um, we've, we've seen that recently in, in so many areas, just to give you some examples, of course, um, you know, the use of digital data for um, reunification of families, for instance, including even, um, you know, possibly facial recognition, perhaps in a, uh, at some point, or um, the use of um, big data for, for needs assessments, uh, you know, so you can, for instance, um, analyze um, social media um, in a certain area to know is there a food shortage or is there water shortage or something like this? Um, you can use uh, biometrics and we can perhaps come back to biometrics. You can have, um, you know, we have a lot of new technologies that we deploy for the purpose of forensics. Uh, we even use some drones, uh, you know, to find some, some um, mass graves, for instance, etc. So there are so many new technologies that will also help us to improve, uh, you know, the situation of people in armed conflict situations and, and that will hopefully help us to um, be better at analyzing as well because uh, we, of course, humanitarian um, actors can still, um, you know, get, get much better at analyzing some of the data that they, they need for their interventions. Um, so so there's a lot of, of promise in um in new technologies. Um, and then we can perhaps talk about the risks <laughs> if you want, because of course, um, all these uh, technologies come with um, with a couple of, of risks as well. And, and, and I want to talk about those because they are, I think, really fascinating. Um, I think there are lots of things to do about them. There are things we learn from multi-stakeholder processes um, in, in, in this. Um, and perhaps I'll talk about, about two of those. Um, one of them is, is data protection, um, and the other one is, is biometrics. Um, or perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll first 
you know, just limited to data protection, then we can see how much time uh, we still have. But just to say that what we have realized in uh, as humanitarian actors is that, of course, we have and process a lot of personal data. So, for instance, if you just think about the ICRC's work for detainees, you know, visiting detainees, registering detainees, which is actually what we are meant to do according to the Geneva Conventions, um, um, you know, processing this data, uh, passing it on to um, the central tracing agency, etc. Or if you look at the work that the entire Red Cross and Red Crescent movement, so the network of um, the ICSC the, and the National Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies and the Federation of Red Cross and Crescent Societies does along migration routes, you know, where one of the main, the main activities is to try to um, recreate or to restore family links. And therefore, you also need personal data of the families, of the people, etc. And so personal data is in our hands and it's highly sensitive data, of course. And um, we have therefore recently really thought um, very, very much about data protection, which is something that you know, was perhaps not so much on our mind a few years back, but of course has also become a bigger issue um, in, you know, in the wider world in a way, as, as you know, um, the community of, of privacy and, and data protection organizations or, 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 or commissions um, is, also, is also teaching us, I think. And interestingly, actually, the community of privacy and data protection commissioners, which is a sort of the meeting of, you know, data protection offices, uh, national data protection offices that come together, have actually adopted a resolution about data protection in um, humanitarian uh, for humanitarian actors. And um, and the ICRC has has worked a lot um, in really with with many different stakeholders, so civil society. Um, you know, NGOs like Privacy International, governments, of course, but also the tech sector, which which really knows um, about this and which can do much more data protection by design or who are critical to do that. Um, and to, to really commit as humanitarians to um, abide by um, data protection um, requirements, you know, such as informed consent or public interest, um, and and not using data for different purposes than for what it was, um, you know, what it was uh, used for, for storing it safely, for you know, destroying it uh, when not needed anymore, etc. And so um, that's really something that then we've discussed with other uh, humanitarian actors, and and you realize in the international community that. It's a bit of a, a gap because the standards um, exist in some countries, but in many places where we work, the standards are either not existent or they're not enforced. And so um, one of the things we've produced at the ICRC is a handbook um, on data protection for the humanitarian sector. It's now uh, in its second edition, actually. Um, and uh, we hope that it is useful for, you know, for the humanitarian sector to 
to use and to improve uh, data protection in, uh, in humanitarian settings. I think some of the observations that you've just made there about the, the value of data for humanitarian action uh, makes makes the point that you were talking about in terms of, of cyber and attacks on cyber and how that um, attacks on data can have such significant impact uh, for the, the humanitarian community. Perhaps then if we um, take um, the opportunity to um, talk, uh, you wanted to mention about uh, biometrics. Yeah, so biometrics are, are interesting, you know, they are, so what, what are biometrics, simply put, I also had to sort of ask, you know, so they're basically a way to unequivocally and uniquely identify individuals. So, you know, it can be DNA, it can be biological reference samples, it can be fa facial recognition, etc. And biometrics, in a way, are a, a, a great challenge for the humanitarian sector. And they're, they're the one thing that we need to get right, because they are a great opportunity for us. Um, but at the same time, they, of course, carry enormous risks. So the opportunity is really, um, again, identification, particularly in the case of missing persons for, for the ICRC. So that's a, that's a huge opportunity. But perhaps the biggest use case is you know, the enrollment and registration of, of beneficiaries and aid program, especially in protracted conflicts, you know, where you might have people coming back for the same sort of aid distribution and you want to make sure that it only goes once to every family. You want to also make sure it's, um, you know, it's uh, it um, gets delivered with better speed, uh, more effectively, that it's traceable, that you're accountable to donors. You also want to make sure it get, doesn't get diverted and used by, um, by military actors and so on. And so biometrics is really very useful in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of, of um, humanitarian aid delivery. But biometrics, again, are, you know, they're private data. And so if you if you look at the data protection um, requirements, for instance, that you need a legal basis normally to have personal data and the, the basis is normally consent. But, you know, what does consent mean in a situation where people don't have enough to eat? You know, it's, it really becomes a meaningless concept. So we don't really think you can rely on, on, on you know, informed consent of people who are in such situations. Um, there's a public interest, however, in having this data, but we need to really be careful about, um, you know, how it is then used, and also that it doesn't get into hand into the hands of those, uh, you know, who shouldn't have any access to to this data. And again, think about you know conflict settings and you know particular. Uh, uh, populations that are vulnerable, that are perhaps stigmatized, etc. And so what we are trying to do with the ICRC is to use biometrics without using them. <laughs> so what we want to try to do is um, to use biometrics, but to leave them in the hands of the owners. So, for instance, um, when uh, let's say you did it for for registration of beneficiaries for a food distribution or something, you would do it, for instance, through a support like a card or something where people would have their biometric data in their hand um, 
and you would then be able to compare it to data that you have, but which only has, you know, the name of the person, for instance, and you would be able to know that it's that person, but you wouldn't have that person's biometric data. And so we wouldn't therefore then be vulnerable to having this data seized from us, either officially or, you know, less officially. Um, so that's what we're trying to do at the moment. And we're working actually with some research um, um, uh, institutes and universities in, uh, in Switzerland to try to, um, to see if we can create what is sometimes called this privacy by design. Okay. So to, again, to use this data, but to, to ensure privacy is, is, is respected. So that's one of the, 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 yeah, the case applications, I think, of, of um, new technologies in, in humanitarian settings, which is very interesting because of both the opportunities and risks aspects to it. It sounds like there's some really interesting opportunities and, and some quite challenging uh, research questions. But uh, if, if solutions are, are found, then huge benefits to, to the beneficiaries of, of humanitarian action. We're probably out of time for, for this edition of the podcast, but I did just want to, in closing, uh, ask you if you had one particular opportunity to, to invest in some kind of technology for humanitarian action, uh, where, what would you be uh, putting your uh, efforts behind? It would probably be the, the biometrics to get, to get that right because it will have wide application can have very, very useful applications, again, for, you know, for restoring family links, for forensics, for distribution, for accountability of humanitarian um, action, you know, which is, which is something that we're under pressure, of course, and rightly so, but we have to get it right. Well, I'm sure uh, many of our listeners will be uh, following that, that with interest and, and looking to see um, how that, that research and, and that process uh, plays out into the future. Thank you so much for your time for, for joining us uh, today, Cordula. Thank you very much, Eve. It was a pleasure. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.